We're going to be in the book of Judges tonight, following along with uh, the uh, end of the book of Joshua. Judges is basically a continuation from the time of Joshua all the way until the time of David. Uh, There's about 350 years total uh, between those two events of Joshua's death and David's crowning. But a lot of things recorded in the book of Judges, I believe, are very, very important. Even though it's basically a lot of history, I'm hoping that what we'll get from our study in the book of uh, Judges is a real message to the church that we need to hear. And I believe it has to do with the fact that we, like the people of Israel, can so easily fall away. And that was the case throughout the entire period of the judges. They kept on falling away from their God. It's a cycle that they were going through. And you can trace the cycle very, very consistently throughout the book of Judges. The first couple of chapters, though, are, are more of a, a, a prologue, a prelude of what they are going to be talking about as we move forward in the book. But it... Uh, it covers some of the time that Joshua was still alive and then at the end of his life, a short section on the various things that were being done in the entire nation that was the immediate cause of that problem that persisted throughout that period of time. Nobody really knows for certain who it was that wrote the book of Judges, but all of the Christian and Jewish expositors have basically agreed that it must probably have been Samuel. Samuel lived before David took his throne and was alive at the end of that period of Judges. And in the course of writing the book of Judges, there are a couple of hints that imply that this writer was aware of all of the events, even up until the time just before the capture of the city of Jerusalem by King David. So that is why most everybody says it had to have probably been Samuel who wrote this. Now we also know that there were some very, very specific commands that God had given to his people in the taking of the land of Canaan, it was God's expectation that they should completely eliminate all of the tribes of the people in the land of Canaan. And we already saw that in the book of Joshua, they weren't really accomplishing that. And we're going to be reiterating that very fact in our study tonight But there's a couple of other things that he does again say in chapters 1 and 2, which is what we're going to be looking at, that I think are of very, very great importance to us all. So again, the author is likely to have been Samuel. It was probably written somewhere around 1045 B.C. or earlier. It covers a period from around 1380 to 1045 B.C. or a little, right around 340 to 350 years. There are two things that are stated in the book of Judges repetitively, some 
dozen or so times one or the other of these two statements is given. The first statement is this. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the second statement is this. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that is that which brings the condemnation of the nation of Israel uh, before us. The fact that they did what was evil in God's eyes and they did what was right in their own eyes. And of course, those two are very contradictory. You can't do what's right in your own eyes if it's not pleasing to God and get away with it. So it wasn't pleasing to God and they did not get away with it. I'd like before we begin our study through the book of Judges to first turn to one of the Psalms which basically gives a really good picture of that which was going on during that time of the Judges. Psalm 107, if you'll turn there with me, is a wonderful psalm. Uh, we're not given the name of the author of this psalm, but it's likely David. But it's a psalm that is kind of a lamentation. But it ends up with a praise to the Lord for his faithfulness. And in this psalm, we're going to see that repetitive cycle over and over again as the psalmist records some of the things that he remembers and considers with regard to his own people and their God. Psalm 107, verse 1, begins with these words, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. That's important. God's mercy does endure forever. And he is very, very often throughout the book of Judges proving that his mercy endures forever. But he says in verse 2, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by the way that they might Go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Notice the pattern. They were experiencing plenty. They were prospering. They were doing well. But during the course of time, there were problems, were problems that developed. They became hungry and they were thirsty in a wilderness experience they didn't know how to take care of themselves. Their souls had fainted in them. They were troubled on every side. And then, in their distress, it tells us in verse 6, they cried out to the Lord, and he heard them. The Lord answered their prayer, and he delivered them out of their distresses. And after having delivered them, he led them in the proper way for them to go before him in the assurance that he is with them if they do what is right. And then the psalmist says this phrase, which is repeated several times in this particular psalm, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. He continues on in verse 9 and says, Another portion of that same pattern 
And in verse 9 it says, For he satisfies a longing soul and fills the hungry souls with goodness. Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in afflictions and irons, because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High, therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their chains in pieces. And then repeating that wonderful lament of the psalmist, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. You can continue reading that psalm and see that same phrase repeated at least a couple more times with the same pattern of situations that developed against his people to bring them to that place of repentance. And then, once they did repent, turning to him, his mercy was extended to them. That's the pattern that we are going to see in the book of Judges over and over and over again. But again, in the first couple of chapters, he gives us a bit of history that leads up to that pattern that we're talking about. So in verse 1 of chapter 1, let's begin to study what I believe Samuel here is telling us with regard to the nation of Israel. It's beginning now immediately after the death of Joshua. But we need to also keep in mind that portions of what we will be reading are not chronologically ordered. In other words, they don't happen in a time sequence from one period to the next, like we typically would record our history. That wasn't the way many of the Jewish writers recorded their history. They focused more on the, the events rather than the timing of the events. And they usually could couple events together for a central purpose. And that's the case here in this book of Judges in this first chapter. We're going to find that deviation beginning with verse 8 and going all the way through verse 17 of chapter 1. And then he'll get back into the present story as he's unfolding it. But here in verse 1 he's saying that Joshua had died. And after the death of Joshua, it came to pass, it says in verse 1, that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. I find that very interesting. That was the case when Joshua was alive, by the way. Joshua, as he began to divide the land, gave the first division of the land to the tribe of Judah. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll see evidence of this one thing. God's preference is to send Judah first. And I think there's a good connection there with the actual meaning of the name of Judah. It comes from a root word which means to praise. So send praise first. And that's what we should be doing when we go to the Lord, when we ask of Him anything. Send forth praise unto our God, and then make your petitions known unto Him. That was what God is implying here in this passage. Send Judah first. Judah shall go up first. Now again, this is after Joshua had died, and they had already conquered the land. They had already been given each tribe their own division, but each one of the tribes 
had a lot of work to do to remove the remainder of the Canaanite peoples from their midst. That was what the problem was for the people of Israel. After Joshua, there was no leader that was appointed. Remember, Moses appointed Joshua to lead the people into the promised land, but there was no appointed leader after Joshua passed away. What they did have were the Levitical priesthood. Remember, they take all of the tribes of Levi and distributed all the tribes of Levi into 48 cities within the territories of all of the other tribes. They were given those cities at very, very specific locations so that no person within any one of the tribal territories would have any difficulty getting to a Levitical city for help with spiritual understanding and needs and moral development. They had the Levites within reach. Every one of them did. You're going to find in the book of Judges no mention of the Levites. There's only one mention of the high priest in chapter 20 of the book of Judges of Phinehas, who was the high priest during this period of time for at least the beginning of uh, this historical record. But there's no other mention of the priesthood. And that's the only source that they had, except for the fact that God would raise up judges for them periodically throughout this period of 340 or 350 years. There are a total of 13 judges, 12 men, one woman. We're going to see them, and not all of them, were especially good characters, but they were all used by God to deliver his people. But before we get again to that portion, let's continue to look at what the writer of Judges says with regard to this first command of God. I want you to send Judah first. Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. Take note of the fact that he has declared there is one tribe and that is the tribe that will begin the process, send them into their territory first, and let them conquer the land for the Lord their God. Verse 3 says, So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Now, you may remember in the dividing of the territories, Simeon's lot was actually within the borders of Judah. They were kind of encased around them was the tribe of Judah. So it seems logical, perhaps, that Judah would ask Simeon, hey, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. What they were doing was coming into an agreement that God did not ordain. And that was, although it doesn't seem to be on the surface, a bad idea, it wasn't what God had said. He wanted Judah to do that which was necessary within the territory of Judah. He would have had Simeon do the same within their territory. But instead they joined forces. They figured that, well, we're probably not able to do it ourselves, so let's get a little help from our brothers in, in the land of Simeon. Well, the truth of the matter is, God had already told them, I will go before you. If you do what I tell you, I will win those battles for you. 
I will send hornets ahead of you. God had intended to lead them in their battles. That did not happen in this particular case. And it's only a very small thing, yes. But I have to ask the question, is any sin too small that it would not offend our God? And I've got to answer that question with an absolute certainty. No. There is no sin too small because all sin, as far as God is concerned, is sin. In His sight, because He is holy, all sin is uncleanness, unholiness. It leads to rebellion. It leads to destruction. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now that applies in the church, of course, which is where that phrase comes from with regard to Paul's message to the church at Corinth. But it also applies to us individually. It applies as well to the nation of Israel. It applies to our nation. And by the way, I'd like to stop here before we go any further because there is something I want to share with regard to our nation as it pertains to what's going on in this portion of the book of Judges that we'll be looking at. I don't know if you all remember, but uh, General Douglas MacArthur, McCarthy, MacArthur was a very famous general uh, during the times of the wars, World War II and the Korean War, Korean War especially, and he said something very, very profound that I'd like to read the quote that he wrote with regard to our nation, the United States of America. He says, In this day of gathering storms, as moral deterioration of political power spreads its growing infection, it is essential that every spiritual force be mobilized to defend and preserve the religious base upon which this nation is founded. For it has been that base which has been the motivating impulse to our moral and national growth. History fails to record a single precedent in which nations subject to moral decay or subject to moral decay have not passed into political and economic decline. There has been either a spiritual reawakening to overcome the moral lapse or a progressive deterioration leading to ultimate national disaster. That, my friends, are the two options before us as a people. We either have a spiritual reawakening or we have moral collapse. A disaster may be on our horizon. Can't promise that we know exactly what's happening or will happen in the days ahead. But I see some very, very strong similarities in what we are experiencing a nation, as a nation to what the people of Israel were experiencing in the days after Joshua's death. So anyway, back to the story in verse 4. Judah has asked Simeon to join them. And then it says, Then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. So God still did bless. God still did take care of their great need to help them in the battle. But we'll find in a few moments that they didn't do it completely. It says in verse 5, And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him. And they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. 
Then Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Now, why in the world would they have done such a thing? Why didn't they just kill him as God had instructed? They would not to keep any of those Canaanites alive. But for some reason, they thought it would be right to show him as an example. And they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Now, you might think that that was kind of cruel, but basically, what that, it is cruel, but what that does is it makes it so that Adonai Bezek could not hold a sword, would not be able to run in battle. They crippled him so that he could not do what he had been doing. And what he had been doing, we find in the next verses, which is quite amazing because really they did to him what he had been doing to many, many others. Whether they knew that or not, we're not told. But he gets punished for his transgressions. So I guess there's justification from God's perspective against this particular individual, even though they didn't kill him, he was set as an example. What you sow, you shall reap. That's a very, very strong precedent, principle in the Word of God. Paul talks about it in the New Testament. It's mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament as well. It is given here as an example. Let's read verse 7 to see what it says. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. So he did die. I don't know if it was from his wounds or from some other means, but he did die from perhaps that particular time, only a short time afterwards. Again, it's important for us to realize an example is set here. What you sow, you shall reap. You know, when you sow seed, you know, of course, what seed you're planting. Like in my case, it would be jalapeno peppers, because that's what I like. So you plant jalapeno pepper seeds in the ground, and you get jalapeno peppers. You don't get cherry tomatoes. You don't get any other kind of vegetable other than what you plant. What you plant, you will sow, what, or you will reap. Or what you sow, you will reap. So there's a like-kindedness in that which you sow. One of the things that, under the Mosaic Law, was a standout thing uh, in the law was God's command to do what was right in His sight, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. When you take vengeance, you don't do more than what you should be doing in respect to that which was done to you. But as far as sowing is concerned, again, you sow seed and you get expected fruit. But it also is very, very true that what you sow in seed returns to you in a large quantity, far more than what you planted. You might have planted ten seeds, but you can get ten plants that will yield hundreds of jalapeno peppers. I know, that's exactly true. It does work that way. So, not only what you sow is what you shall reap, but 
If you sow to the wind, you shall reap the whirlwind. Another biblical example of that very thing. So this is important for us to recognize here. Now again, as I mentioned earlier, verse 8 through verse 7, 17 will take us back to the time before Joshua died when they first began to divide the land. Remember they gave Joshua, gave Judah that first division of the land. And in the book of Joshua, we find the exploits of Judah within his territory after he had been given that land. And verses 7 through 17 are a repetition of some of that detail. So verse 8 rather, uh, beginning with verse 8 now, now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the south in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Abba. And they killed Shishai, Ahimam, and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Deber. Now the name of Deber was formerly Kirjath Sefer. Now here we have, again, a going backwards in time when Judah began to conquest. A couple of things I want to point out. It says that they took Jerusalem and struck it with the edge of the sword and the city was put on fire. Now you need to understand they did not completely destroy the city of Jerusalem. They did not completely conquer the Jebusites who were in Jerusalem. In fact, hopefully you remember also that in the dividing of the land, the city of Jerusalem, a portion of it was given to Judah and a portion of it was given to Benjamin. So the Jebusites, although Judah went and did control a portion of the city, they did not conquer the Jebusites. Neither did the Benjamites, as we'll find out. And again, that won't ever be possible until the time of David, some 330 years after this, or more. But pointing that out, I'm mindful of the fact that Hebron was the city that was given to Caleb. And Caleb is going to be discussed next. Now, this discussion in this part of chapter 1, again, is a repeat of what was spoken already in the book of uh, Joshua, all the way back in chapter 15 of the book of Joshua. So it says again in verse 11, from there they went against the inhabitants of Deber, and the name of Deber was formerly Kirjath Sefer. Now that's important because this is where Caleb comes into play. Verse 12 says, Then Caleb said, Whoever attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. So you remember the story? He offered his daughter to whoever was able to take the city of Deber. And it tells us in verse 13, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother took it, so he gave it him, or gave him, rather, his daughter Aksa as wife. Now it happened when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? So she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the south, which is, by the way, a desert area, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So Caleb had a heart for his daughter. He took care of her. And Othniel, by the way, 
uh, will be recorded for us as the very first judge of the nation of Israel, beginning in chapter 3, will unfold his story. But it's very likely that the writer of Judges, Samuel, if you don't mind, I'm going to just say Samuel. Samuel wrote about this event to kind of remind us that Othniel was the son-in-law of Caleb. He was also a nephew of Caleb, most likely. But he's married now to Caleb's daughter, and he will show up again in a couple of chapters from now. Verse 16 continues that part of the story that is pre-death of Joshua. It says in verse 16, Now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Now we're back into the period that Samuel introduced to us in verse 1. He continues on to say, And also, Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers. But, I hate it when a but is included in a place in the Word of God that doesn't include the Word God. This is not a good thing. The reason they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. I want you to think about this for a moment because already before Joshua had died, they had battles with armies that numbered a large number of chariots. And God told them, don't worry about any of that army. Tomorrow at this time, they will be defeated. In other words, it didn't matter if they had these chariots, which were the tanks of the day, or not. If God was going to go before them, and that's what he wanted to do, then they would never have to fear, even though the armies that they were facing had these tanks available to them. God was with Judah, but they didn't go with God. They would not go down into that area of the lowlands to take that area because of fear. That's the problem that entered into the tribe of Judah. They feared the Canaanites when they should have trusted their God. Verse 20 says, And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said, and then he expelled from them, from there, the three sons of Anak. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now the Benjamins are given a very short commentary here. They didn't drive out the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That was their failing. And take note of the fact that again, at the end of verse 21, he says, the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. That's internal evidence that the writer was alive even just shortly before 
the time of David, because it was David who took the city and defeated the Jebusites, not the Benjamites, not here, but some 300 plus years later. Verse 23 says, or rather verse 22, And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. Now this would be the Ephraimites, the half-tribe of Manasseh on the east side of the Jordan River, and the half-tribe on the western side of the Jordan River are not included in this portion. So it's just the tribe of Ephraim, the other son of Joseph. And it says the name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, verse 24, they said to him, Please show us the entrance of the city, and we will show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But, there it is again, they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, built the city, and called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. So they just allowed a man to live, and he basically went just a short distance away and started another city and named it the same name as the one that he had lived in before. Still, the people of Israel did not do what they were supposed to do in its entirety. Again, it's so important for us to realize when God wants us to do something, He wants us to be obedient, completely obedient, not just 80-20 or 90-10 obedience. He wants 100% obedience. And if we are unable to do that which God asks of us in our own strength, we should know without any doubt that we have the Holy Spirit to enable us. And with all truth, according to the Word of God, with God, all things are possible. Without God, we can do nothing. So don't rely on your own strength, my friends. Rely on the power of God and the promise of God and His grace to see to it that what He says He will do if we but trust in Him. That's the problem and it gets worse as we move forward in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Verse 27 says, However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethsheon and its villages, or Teanach and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibleam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. They figured, well, Canaanites want to stay. We're not really able to take them out like God had said. Therefore, we're going to let them stay. It says in verse 28, And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute but did not completely drive them out. So even though they might have felt they didn't have the strength to do it at the beginning, they grew in number, grew in strength, and apparently they came to a place when they realized they were strong enough to put the Canaanites into submission under them, to pay them tribute, but, and again the word but, it's so prevalent in this passage, they did not completely drive out the Canaanites. That was their sin. Now, Ephraim, verse 29, did uh, 
drive out, uh, they did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalalal. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab, Akzib, Helba, Aphik, or Rehob. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land, for they numbered a great large number of men and women. They did not drive them out. Take note of the fact that here it says, instead of the Canaanites dwelt among the Asherites, it says the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites. It's getting worse. Nor did Naphtali, verse 33, drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anna. But they dwelt among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath were put under tribute to them. Lastly, the Amorites, verse 34, forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. They were the ones who were making the demands against the tribe of Dan, not the other way around. And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Heres, in Ijalon, and in Shalbim. Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. So it's the tribe of Joseph, the Ephraimites, who was able then to put those same people, the Canaanite peoples that forced Dan into the mountains, they put those Canaanites under tribute as well. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. So they had a very large territory. Take note of the fact, by the way, that in verse 35 there's a city mentioned, or territory mentioned, it's Aijalon. You may remember in the book of Joshua, it was there that God granted Joshua's request to make the sun stand still for about a period of a day so that they could win the battle. It was a great victory in Aijalon. Here now, they're running from the people of the Canaanite tribes who remain. Such a sad state of affair. Now, was God pleased with any of this? Remember, it does say that God went with Judah. He went before them. He was with them, but they didn't do the job that they were intended to do. Now we find in chapter 2, God is going to speak to them. And it's interesting that he refers to this particular individual who speaks as the angel of the Lord. Now, in the New Old Testament, most of the time, unless it's obvious in the context, the phrase, the angel of the Lord, is a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ, we believe. We believe it is because the person who speaks in these first several verses speaks in the first person as though he himself were God. And so there's no other conclusion that any, at least, conservative theologian will have to make that this must be the pre-incarnate Jesus. He has appeared to them, apparently. We're not told how, 
We're not told where, but this is what he says according to Samuel as he records this message from the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. By the way, keep that in mind. This is God speaking. And he's telling his people Israel, all 12 tribes, I will never break my covenant with you. Important for us to remember. Verse 2 says, And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? You hear the, the heart of God in this question. Why did you do this? It's kind of like the question in the garden. Abraham, or rather Adam, Adam, where are you? Oh, how sad it must be for God to have experienced the pain that comes with disobedient people. I think his heart is the same heart today. And when people are disobedient to his command in the church, it grieves him just equally as much. We're told, by the way, in the New Testament that we must not grieve the Holy Spirit. It's so sad when we do. But it can happen. And it's unfortunate when it does. But God's mercy is there because, keep in mind, the promise that He made to the nation of Israel, the statement that He made here in verse 1, I will never break my covenant with you, He said the same thing to His church, you and I. He will never break His covenant with us. But they failed. And so he says, why have you done this? Then verse 3 says, Therefore I said also, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So it was, when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Oh, they were so sorry that they had failed. They were so sorry that they had offended God. Well, Perhaps. It appears as though they were sorry, but I don't believe it's true that they were sorry that they offended God. I think they were sorry because they weren't going to see God help them anymore in carrying out the command that God had given to them. In the New Testament again, in Second Corinthians, we find Paul making a statement. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. There's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. I've made this statement more than one time. It's worthy of repetition because it's so important for us to understand. Worldly sorrow is a sorrow that says, I got caught in doing what I knew I shouldn't have done. Oh, I'm sorry I got caught. Or I'm sorry I did that. It's not even, I didn't mean to. I'm sorry that I did that because it didn't really work out the way I had planned. That's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a sorrow that says, Oh God, I'm so sorry I offended you. Oh Lord, please forgive me. I am not worthy of your forgiveness, but Lord, I come to you and I ask, Oh God, that you would do that which only you are able to do. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness and forgive me of all my sins. That's godly sorrow and that does lead to repentance. They did not repent, even though they wept. Esau wept, but he didn't repent. 
Remember, God said, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. So that's important for us to realize. Recognize that these things are written for our benefit, for you and I to understand. So let's continue. Verse 7 says, So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now he's going back again to the end of Joshua's life. And this is again purposeful in Samuel's mind. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath, Heres, in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gaash. Now here's the reason I have been focusing on their unwillingness to repent. It says in verse 10, When all the generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them, who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for them. Why? Because there was no spiritual leadership that they depended on. The Levites were there, but they didn't go to the Levites. If they had, they would have known the law. They would have known the commandments of God. They would have known what God had spoken in Deuteronomy chapter 20. They would have known what God had spoken through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 35. They would have known the things that God had promised them if they would only obey His voice. But they did not. It's interesting to note that in that latter part of verse 10, where it says, they did not know the Lord. The word know can be of various forms in the Hebrew language. The form of the word used here is really they did not acknowledge the Lord nor the work which he had done. It's not that they didn't know about the Lord. They didn't know of the Lord's work in, his, in their lives his many miracles that he had done, but they did not acknowledge his having done those things on their behalf. That's the sin of that next generation. It's not the fault of the first generation. It's their own fault. They are to blame for their own sins. So they're unfaithful. Verse 11 says, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. There's that phrase that I mentioned earlier. It's going to be repeated more than once, I think a total of seven times. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. See how fast they turned away from God and to serve other gods because they did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. Verse 14 repeats, And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. 
And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Remember Psalm 107. Apply it here. Apply it in your own life. Apply it in your church. Apply it in your state, in your community where you live. Apply it to our nation. Apply it to the nations of the world. Oh, that men would indeed cry out to God in the time of need. He would answer. And he wants to. He's proven it over and over again in this book, as we will see. Verse 19 says, And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers. So not only is it a cycle that they start out well, get prosperous, get haughty, turn away from God, do evil things, God judges them and brings a, an enemy against them, and then they cry out to God, He answers their cry, delivers them with a judge, and they come back now, but not to the same place. It says, they reverted more corruptly than their fathers. It was a spiraling downward in this repetition of over and over again needing to be delivered by God. So they behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not, be, not heeded my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel, whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hands of Joshua. And again, remember, the word Joshua is the Old Testament word equivalent of our New Testament word, Jesus. Yeshua, HaMashiach, Jesus, our Messiah. He's in the book, everywhere. And we need to be mindful of what we read and apply it in our daily living so that we might not fall as they had fallen. May God help us by the power of His Holy Spirit to do so in these last days. My friends, we're in troubled days. There is no doubt that things are going to get worse before they get better. And how are we to live? How are we to represent Him? How are we to shine the light? How are we to go before those people who need to know and proclaim His word of truth? How are we to be successful in drawing men and women all around us to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? It can only be done by the Spirit of God in us. It's He who draws all men to Himself. So let's rely on His power. Let's rely on His faithfulness. Let's trust in Him. Let's be obedient to Him. And let us be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God, soldiers for Christ, ambassadors to bring glory to Him and let His kingdom come. Amen.